Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and all this month we're exploring issues to do with the environment and climate change. In this first podcast of May, we're exploring hydrogen technologies and their potential to contribute to the UK's climate change targets. With me to discuss that is Baroness Brown of Cambridge, Professor Dame Julia King, an engineer who's had many roles and currently, amongst other things, is Deputy Chair of the Committee on Climate Change. Julia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. For those who are less familiar with its work, can you tell us about the Committee on Climate Change, who they are and what they do? Yes, the Committee on Climate Change was created by the Climate Change Act in 2008 and it's, it advises on, or it rather proposes to Parliament, the, uh, the 2050 target. So the target that was originally 80% in, when the Act was first passed, uh, and indeed the five yearly carbon budgets. So we currently have five yearly carbon budgets that take us out to 2032. It also reports to Parliament every year on the UK's progress towards meeting its carbon budgets. It's a committee of eight experts chaired by Lord Deben, and the, our expertise ranges across economics, energy, electricity systems, climate science, more general engineering, human behavior. So a very broad range of relevant expertise. And it's supported by a secretariat of 25 to 30 economic analysts, scientists and engineers. And one of the things that the Committee on Climate Change have analysed is obviously what the UK needs to do to meet its net zero target for greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, the new target you were just talking about. What were the conclusions of the committee when it came to the contribution of hydrogen technologies? I think the most dramatic thing about our report on net zero, which we produced last year, which was the basis for changing the 2050 target in legislation from 80% reduction to net zero. The most dramatic thing about that was actually the role of hydrogen. You can get to, we could get to the 80% target without addressing emissions in some of the most challenging areas. Areas like um, emissions from heavy transport, emissions from some of the most challenging areas of industry, emissions from heating some of our, uh, our buildings in the UK. You didn't need to do that to get to 80%. You have to address all of those areas almost entirely to get to 100%. And that's where hydrogen comes in. And the 80% scenario, we do as much as we can with energy efficiency and electricity, essentially. And where electricity doesn't work, then actually that's where you find hydrogen becomes a, a very effective solution. So it is, it is really quite dramatic in our report, the, the importance of, the, the almost absence of hydrogen for 80% and the very, very significant role hydrogen plays if we're to get to 100%. Indeed, so much so that by the time you get to 2050, hydrogen is providing something like a third of our energy system. So we have an electricity system that's double the size of it is, it is today. And we have a hydrogen energy system which is providing as much energy as our electricity system does today. So that's something around 300 to 350 terawatt hours. That's a huge amount. Just before we get into some of the details of making all of that commercial reality, I understand there, there are two main routes to producing hydrogen on the commercial scales needed. Could you kind of explain what those two different routes are? 
But the one that's most common today is the is the steam reformation of methane. So taking uh, methane CH4, reacting it with steam and producing hydrogen and carbon dioxide. Now, in order for that to be a technology that helps us to get to net zero, you have to capture that carbon dioxide. So you have to have steam reformation of methane with carbon capture and storage, and you have to have carbon CO2 capture rates, which are 95% and higher if we're going to meet our net zero targets. So the advantage of this route is it's, it's, it's relatively well established, although not with the carbon capture and storage. It's relatively cheap. It does need, of course, a gas supply, so it doesn't contribute towards our energy independence. But it's, you know, it's a useful way of producing hydrogen in large quantities, and that tends to be what we call blue hydrogen. The, the other major route is, is the electrolysis of water. So using electricity to split water back into its constituent parts of hydrogen and oxygen. If you use renewable energy, so if you use solar or indeed our, our great offshore wind resource that we have around the UK, then you can produce essentially 100% zero carbon hydrogen. The, the challenges with that is it's, it's very energy intensive. It uses a lot of electricity, but it does produce very clean hydrogen, hydrogen you can use directly with, in fuel cells, for example, without any danger of, of poisoning them. And the other possible real advantages for the UK is that obviously it's something you could do with offshore wind, and it might enable us to do, in fact, very likely will enable us to do some element of grid balancing using the wind at those times when the wind is blowing very strongly and we don't need that electricity on the grid. It also uh, has the other advantage that because its, it's basic ingredients are, are water and electricity, it does give us a degree of energy resilience of energy independence. We're not having to import anything. And of course, the cost of it is hugely dependent on the cost of electricity because 86% or something of the cost of producing electrolytic hydrogen is the energy is the cost of the energy you put in and how well is the uk really placed to develop these technologies at scale i'm absolutely convinced that the uk is extraordinarily well positioned to do this in the case of of steam methane forming with with carbon capture and storage our real advantage is that we our geology is such that we have plenty of opportunities for storage of the captured CO2 offshore. And that is not true of some of our, our European neighbours, for example, like Germany, who doesn't have very much opportunity for doing CCS. Japan doesn't have very much opportunity for doing CCS. And yet these are countries who are very keen to be using a lot of hydrogen in the future. So that's one very big advantage. We can do, uh, we, have the, we have places to store captured CO2. From an electrolysis perspective, we have a, a brilliant offshore wind resource around the, the UK. I think uh, the best offshore wind resource in Europe. We're going to have a lot of renewables on our grid by 2030 and indeed by 2050. So that opportunity to use it for, for grid balancing. Uh, and if you're using it for, if you're using electricity intermittently for electrolysis, you need particular kinds of electrolyzers. PEM electrolyzers work better in this intermittent way uh, and we have I think the world leader in the development of PEM electrolyzers which is uh, ITM power. More generally actually our industrial base for developing 
the production and use of hydrogen is extremely strong. We've got, of course, BP and Shell, who very much want to be into the new low carbon industries. They're very well placed to be the new producers and sellers of hydrogen. We have uh, uh, one of our FTSE 100 companies, Johnson Matty, um, who are leaders in, in fuel cells, specialist materials, uh, materials for electrodes, etc. So a global business right in this, in this area and a very research intensive business. We've got ITM Power. We've got Wrightbus, which has now been, uh, is now being run by, by Joe Bamford of the JCB family in Northern Ireland. He's very, very keen to turn that into a hydrogen bus company. So a brilliant way of, of developing new industries for Northern Ireland. Intelligent Power, a spin out from Loughborough University, which is a, a world leader in, uh, in fuel cells. So we actually have got a superb industrial base to, to develop this from. We also have a very strong academic base with real skills in electrochemistry, a lot of work on new routes to hydrogen, hydrogen storage, hydrogen embrittlement, hydrogen transport, materials for storing and working with hydrogen. So we're very well placed academically. As I say, we have very good geology from the point of view of doing carbon capture and storage, but also we have salt caverns where you might be able to store hydrogen. Uh, and our location gives us this fantastic offshore wind resource. So, you know, we could be, this could be an industry, I think we, you know, it becomes a really important strategic industry for the UK, leading to both exports of machinery and equipment like the electrolyzers, but also we could be exporting hydrogen, I think, to, to countries like Germany, who are very, very keen to develop their hydrogen strategies as well. And just to help my understanding, is the technology the two different types of technology you've described are they all well developed and ready to go at an industrial level or is there a uh, an element of R&D and development needed in order to get to that point well and in, in, in terms of the steam methane reforming that's a that's a process that's been being done for for many years the part of development that we need for that is the carbon capture and storage okay. and getting to very high carbon cap carbon co2 capture levels so that's a that's a hugely important part of the development we need to do there of course electrolysis is also something that's been done for years but of the 27 or so terawatt hours of hydrogen we produce at the moment only about a tenth of that is produced sorry only four percent of that I beg your pardon is currently produced by electrolysis but also the kind of PEM electrolyzers that uh, that work at lower temperatures and therefore are, are better in this working with offshore wind and intermittent generation that ITM power are developing. That's a technology that is still in the process of being really scaled up to the kind of scale that we're now thinking about. So that's a real opportunity, but there is still more R&D support to, to get that to the very large scale that I think we're envisaging here. And how can we understand what's going on in comparison with other countries are other countries ahead of us or what can we learn from them well, well lots of countries are publishing hydrogen strategies um, Europe has a hydrogen strategy with an ambition of whereas we have an ambition of around potentially around 300 terawatt hours by 2050 Europe has an ambition in their hydrogen strategy of 25% of their energy needs which is about uh, I think about 2250 terawatt hours China has a hydrogen strategy 
talking about 10% of China's power needs by 2050 coming from hydrogen. Japan has a hydrogen strategy, Korea has a hydrogen strategy, Australia has a, a hydrogen strategy. So it's very much you know, the things that everybody is thinking about. I would say in terms of Europe, Germany has been driving very hard on this, although it doesn't have the advantages that we do. It doesn't have the offshore wind resource. It doesn't have the, the opportunity to do carbon capture and storage. Uh, and in Asia, Japan has been driving a hydrogen strategy now for many years. Uh, Japan is interested in using hydrogen probably for slightly different things than, than the ones we would be most interested in. Japan has been particularly interested in, in hydrogen vehicles for many years. Okay, so taking all of those things into account, the different types of technologies, the advantages that the UK has, and what we can learn from other countries, what are the key elements that need to be in a UK hydrogen strategy? Well, I suppose I would like to see, because this is a sector that doesn't really yet exist in the UK, and yet it's a sector with such potential for us, I would like to, to see the, the government convening the, all of these potential industry players to produce a sector deal, something like the offshore wind sector deal, where the players come together and, and you know, they say, well, if you do this, will you do this? You know, that they come together and as a, as a sector and, and agree to what they will put in if the government will provide the right support. And we'll need some kind of price support. Now, clearly, to start with, if you're making hydrogen from methane, it's going to be more expensive than methane. So if you're trying to replace heating in buildings, you're trying to do it with something that is more expensive than what people have at the moment. So there'll need to be some price support, you know, potentially something like contracts for difference in the way that we helped bring down the cost of, of offshore wind so successfully. Uh, they will need to be some joint investment between government and some of the major players in some large demonstrators. I think we need a large research and innovation investment program something like the Faraday partnership that we've had for batteries. So something like, you know, 250 million into, into research and innovation, because there are quite a lot of innovative UK companies in this area. And there are also some really great work going on in, in UK universities that could be pulled through into actual sort of actual product and improving the processes. But some sort of coordinated activity like that. And indeed, one of the things that really got the offshore wind industry going was of course the green investment bank so the government being prepared to invest alongside others to demonstrate to private investors and commercial investors if you like that actually this was something the government had real confidence in and that government policy would continue to support and that was hugely successful in uh, in getting the offshore wind industry um, up to a very large scale in quite a short time and I think some kind of investment support vehicle like that would also be enormously helpful in getting this sector going. And do you see the government are responding to many of these points? It's obviously a very strange time because of coronavirus and their other priorities, but, but are the kind of points that you've been making looking like that they are being responded to inside bays and others? Well, certainly in talking to our minister, Kwasi Kwarteng, He's been, he's been very positive about exploring initiatives like Contracts for Difference. I think we've got, we've got some small hydrogen funding initiatives coming out of Bayes at the moment. What I would really like to see and what I'm missing at the moment is a big coordinated initiative 
that actually pulls together the research and innovation, the UKRI, together with Bayes, together with an investment vehicle into a large initiative, a large coordinated initiative, because I think this is such an opportunity for the UK on so many fronts. Actually, much more of an opportunity for the UK, I think, than batteries, because actually we do have some of the really core technologies here, and we've got some of the, com some of the companies which, if they can be enabled to grow, can really be world leaders in this field. So I think this is, you know, this is very exciting for the UK, not just as the offshore wind industry has largely been somewhere where we get lots of inward investment, but actually somewhere where, you know, we can really rebuild UK manufacturing industry based on UK intellectual property. And how do some of these technologies then feed into the discussions about COP26? Is this something that the UK could then use as positioning itself and what it's prepared to sign up to? I think it's a really interesting one for discussing at COP26, actually, because, I mean, hydrogen is not particularly easy to transport or store. So ideally, if you can make it and use it fairly close by, that's quite a good position, rather a good position to be in. And it seems to me, you know, a lot of COP26 should, should be about discussing how do we support developing countries to, uh, to decarbonize? How do we enable them actually to go beyond coal very quickly? And of course, there are quite a lot of developing countries in, in Africa and where they have a lot of sun and where solar energy could be very, very cheap indeed. And of course, that means electrolysis could be very cheap. If your energy is very cheap, electrolysis could be uh, a very cheap way of making very clean fuel. So it does seem to me that, you know, this is one of the directions that we could be looking at for supporting developing economies to, to become clean energy economies and indeed potentially to become exporters of, of clean energy. So I think making sure that our development support is is focused on clean energy technologies, looking at where it's important to um, provide technology transfer and support to developing economies. Hydrogen could be playing um, a significant role in that, a significant and important role. It's not the whole story, obviously, for developing economies and for people's power systems, but it certainly could be a very core theme. So you've, just to conclude, have described where we might be by 2050 if we embrace all of these things but clearly there's a there's a process and things have to uh, build up so can you kind of sketch out maybe how long it would take for the industry to get itself fully established and where we might be along that road in say i don't know five years time well i suppose in 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 about 10 years time because we're we're now targeting 40 gigawatts of of offshore wind by 10 years time. So that's a very significant increase in, in the renewables and the offshore wind on our grid. By then I think we could be producing something of the order of 100 terawatt hours of hydrogen in the UK. So a third of the way to where we need to be by 2050. Um, it would be a mixture of green and blue hydrogen. It won't all be produced from electrolysis. And we could be using it in, in buses, in trains, in home heating, for those homes where it's not affordable or possible to completely electrify them. And uh, we could be doing that in areas close to offshore wind farms. So we could be doing that in areas, for example, like Hull and Grimsby and using that as real regeneration projects with new high-tech jobs for those areas uh, and giving them new clean buses and better train connections. Uh, we could be exporting electrolyzers 
We could be seeing inward investment from companies like Siemens who, who are looking to invest in some big electrolyzer manufacturing capability. And I think we could be selling hydrogen to Germany. Well, that's a very exciting prospect if most or all of that comes off and a lovely place to finish. Uh, Baroness Brown, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you found this podcast. Or you can check out further details about the Foundation at www.foundation.org.uk.